these last number of months, we have been discussing the Ten Commandments. We went through each commandment one by one, all ten. And then we started a summary review, lessons to be learned. And we're on to the fourth and, Lord willing, final summary today. Our key verse is Galatians 2 and verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. May we pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, creator and sustainer of all things, God beyond our capability to conceive, so deep, so broad, so wonderful, the virtues of God, we anticipate praising thy glory throughout all eternity, never exhausting our zeal and wonder, ever learning more. For God is everywhere. God has all power. God has all wisdom. God is infinite love and a multitude of other things. And due to his grace and his grace alone, there are souls here who have been enlightened to the means of reconciliation with God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins on the cross, died, was buried, rose again, and ascended into glory, from whence he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. O oh Lord, make this to be a time where we're not distracted by any other thoughts, other issues, but may our hearts be directed to the word of God and to the will of God for us. I pray for every man and every woman, every son, every daughter, that what is said today, that the Lord will make it personal and applicable for each person's situation. We pray, Lord, knowing that without love, no matter what we know and what we do is of no value, but the love we must have should be the one that comes from heaven, shed abroad into our hearts. We know that's the first commandment, to love thee with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit through each of us. Then may we be an inspiration and encourage to, to others, and also that we would be salt and light in the world. Thank you. May the Lord God be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the topic is the summary of our study of the law, part four. In review, our first part, we defined the law and discussed its purpose. I'm going to give very brief summaries of the first three weeks. First of all, the definition of the law. The law are the standards springing from the nature of God, eternally binding on all moral creatures, whether recognized or not, the transgression of which resulting in eternal separation from God. We went through the Ten Commandments one by one. These found in Exodus chapter 20. 
I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's number one. Number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Five, honor thy father and thy mother. Six, thou shalt not kill. Seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Eight, thou shalt not steal. Nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. And ten, thou shalt not covet. Now, as for the purpose of the law, we noted there are several purposes. But one of them is this. This is very important to comprehend. The law was given to intensify our knowledge of sin. Intensify our knowledge of sin. And lead us to Christ. For we are utterly incapable of satisfying the demands of this law ourselves. But Jesus Christ took our place and settled all charges against us. There is now nothing left for sinners to do but to believe Christ died for us and receive the gift of forgiveness and restoration to God. Second part of our review had to do with the work of the Holy Spirit which is to bring conviction. Man is incapable of discerning the depth of his sin or the horrors of its consequences. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. Jesus said, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Then last week, we did the third part of our review, and we noted how could we discuss the commandments and not highlight the first commandment, which is to love. We find it in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. So love must be our motive in all life. We noted that if we were to know hundreds, if not thousands of different languages and every mystery there was and give our bodies to be burned and give all things away to the poor and not have love, we would be nothing. Love must be our motive in all life. We must love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The heart, we noted, is the center of desires. God calls us to devote this center entirely to him, at the exclusion of all others. The soul is the place of dedication of all we possess to be used for God. That would include everything from our eyes to our feet and all about us. And then finally, the mind, no, secondly, thirdly, the mind has been corrupted by sin, but now is to undergo doctrination, the means of change being the word of God. We must love God finally with all our strength. Required here, complete determination. We noted the measure of a man is what it takes to stop him. Here is the greatest commandment. Have complete devotion, complete dedication, complete doctrination, and complete determination for God. 
We ended last time with these words. O love of God, how strong and true, eternal and yet ever new, uncomprehended and unbought, beyond all knowledge and all thought. So we conclude now with a study of grace. How can we discuss the law and not balance the truths there with the truths of grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God, unearned, unbought, incapable for us to engender need for. It is unmerited favor of God. So let's review some well-worn verses. I say well-worn because sometimes uh, the, the great verses are, are memory verses and we kind of lose paying attention to them because we have said them so many times. But Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 are very, very essential for us to comprehend. I trust many of you have memorized that text. But it's important for us to review these verses in context. Again, the verses are Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Would you say it with me, please? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So by grace we are saved. Saved from the judgment, the wrath of God in this life and through eternity in a devil's hell, through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God to be received, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, to understand the context, we'll look at the whole chapter. It's just 10 verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And he's writing to believers here, Christians. He says, you hath he quickened. Quickened means made alive, who were dead, in trespasses and sins. So we were the living dead, as some commentators put it. We were dead in our relationship with God until God made us alive toward him. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Verse 2 ends with the children of disobedience. Verse 3, children of wrath. But God, we read in verse 4, who is rich in mercy. What a wonderful transitional phrase that is. Here we were without God, without hope in the world, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And see, everybody here who has trusted in Christ, a mystical union happened in the moment where they trust in him, where we were, as we read in Romans chapter 8, planted together with Christ, joined together with him. And so, at up on the cross, planted with him. We were with him as he died. We were with him as he buried. We were with him as he rose again. We were with him as he ascended to heaven. And now we are seated positionally together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, 
he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This is explained in these two golden verses, verses 8 and 9. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Works would be being uh, honest, it would be working for what you earn, it could be uh, you think it's sacraments in the church or ordinances like baptism or confirmation, but none of that will avail. So nobody can boast, nobody earns their way in, it's all a gift. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship. He, has a, he does the work in us. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, in your bulletin, these seven fundamental facts are listed, so you might want to make notes there. But the following are seven fundamental facts about grace. Very important that we grasp these. Fact number one. Grace does not appear in the immediate divine dealings with sins of the unsaved. In other words, God does not wink at any sin that the lost commit and say, well, we'll let that one slide, or we'll, we'll give you three strikes and you're out, or uh, we understand and nobody's perfect. There's, there's none of that sort of uh, hesitation to judge there. Grace does not appear in the immediate divine dealings with the sins of the unsaved. This is an essential truth, so misunderstood, God is not so big-hearted as to overlook sin. All sin, every sin, is judged. And there shall be no clemency. That's the first fact. Second one is like under the first. Grace does not appear in the immediate divine dealings with sins of the saved. See, for example, 1 John 1, 9. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins not merciful and gracious. Would you turn in the Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5 with me? See, what we're saying is that grace does not contradict judgment. Like, if you have grace, then God doesn't judge. Everything gets judged. There's not a single sin committed in this earth, but it is judged. Okay? That's not a matter of wiping it out where God says, ah, it's all right, don't worry about it. There's none such thing. And that's explained in part here in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5. And it shall be, when he shall be guilty in one of these things, there's a list of, of uh, sins there, that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing. Doesn't bury it, doesn't try to forget it, he confesses it. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord for his sin which he has sinned female from the flock, a lamb or a kid or the goats, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin. And if he be not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring for his trespass when he hath committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons or unto the Lord, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And he shall bring them unto the priest who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first, and wring off his head from his neck, but shall not divide it asunder. And he shall sprinkle the blood of the sin offering upon the side of the altar, and the rest of the blood shall be wrung out at the bottom of the altar 
is a sin offering. And he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the manner. And the priest shall make an atonement for him for his sin, which he hath sinned. And it shall be forgiven him. And so the forgiveness comes when blood is shed for a sin. Now it could be the blood of the person who committed the sin. Or as the Lord was communicating, confess those sins unto a substitute. And the sin will be judged in the substitute. But the sin will be judged. It will be in the substitute or it will be in us. But it will be judged. Grace does not obviate the reality of judgment to come. So God is faithful to what he has said through all the scriptures. Nobody gets away with nothing. Everything gets judged that is sin. So he is faithful and just. He is just in that the demands of the law are satisfied by the death of the proxy. Please turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 26. There we read, to declare, I say, at that time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God is just himself as he carries out justice on his creation. But he provides the justification and then he sends his own son to take our beating on the substitute, on the proxy. Very important to comprehend that. But grace does not mean anybody gets away with anything. Every sin is judged. Fact number three. Grace is not withheld because of our lack of merit. Indeed, grace finds its greatest triumph and glory in the sphere of human helplessness. But none of us here should think, well, if I would have done 23 things wrong or 37, but not 400,000. No, you don't get it. Merit is not an issue at all when it comes to grace. Grace is not withheld, whether it's a tiny little bit of sinning from our point of view for a short time, or a whole long life of incredible, massive, and shameful, unbearable sinning. Merit's not the issue. In fact, grace finds its greatest triumph and glory in the sphere of human helplessness. I think about the time I used to paint houses, and I was painting a farmhouse with a is exterior paint, and it was oil base, very sticky. It's toward the evening, there are a lot of bugs around that farmyard, and so moths and other sorts of winged creatures would fly up and get stuck on that wall in the paint. And if I could try to deliver them, they're just kind of stuck there like this, and their little legs are moving, they can't, they're, they're caught. I thought, what if I could help and pull them off? But all you do is just pull the thorax away from the wings and they, they still die. That's one helpless insect. And nothing you can do. And I thought, I'm always going to remember that picture. And here we are, some 50 years later almost, as I look back on it, what a picture of helplessness that is. And it's not any more helpless than you and I are to, uh, to find our own way to glory. We are totally helpless. And not like 0.0001% we contribute and God does all the rest. No, we are totally helpless. And God's greatest triumph and glory is in the sphere of human helplessness. Grace cannot be exercised where there is the slightest degree of human merit. Not the slightest degree of it. Man may say, I've made too many mistakes. And God responds, that has nothing to do has nothing to do with what I am conferring to you by grace. 
Merit has nothing to do with it. Do you all understand that? Don't let the devil cause any of you to think, I've just sinned too long, too profligately, too callously, or too harmfully. No, none of that is relevant to the issue of grace. It, you sin right well, yes. In fact, you're more of a sinner probably than you conceive yourself to be. But that's not the question. How well we conceive it, or how much there is there. The question is, does God provide a means by which we can be reconciled to him without any merit, any merit at all? Fact number four. Grace cannot be lessened because of lack of merit. I'll say this again, and it needs to be repeated to sink deeply in our ears. The sin question has been set aside forever. So the opportunity for grace is extended equally to all who believe. The sweet little seven-year-old girl, the 70-year-old profligate murderer. It's the same extension equal to all who believe. It is not that God ignores guilt. It is that he has met this issue perfectly and finally for all men in the death of his son. I was asked why I left the Roman church where there's the holy sacrifice of the mass or the bloodless sacrifice of the mass. And I answered in part by saying, you tell me what Hebrews 10.10 says. What does it say? We have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's it. And daily priests offer sacrifices which can never take away sins. If you came to God, to Jesus Christ, there is no sin left. We have as much righteousness as, in fact, we are bequeathed the righteousness of Christ himself. That's how we can be seated in the heavenlies, you see. It's all gone. It's all done. Don't get saved but still carry around that morose sadness of the, the grievedness of what you did. Not as far as whether or not to get into glory. It is not that God ignores guilt. It is that he has met this issue perfectly and finally for all men in the death of his son. So the grace of God is now offered in perfect independence of human sin. Fact number five. Grace cannot incur a debt. An act is not gracious if under any conditions a debt is incurred. Oh Lord, you've done so much for me. I need to give payback here. I need to devote myself to, to pay back up. I know I can't cover everything, but the rest of my life I'm going to pay back what you've done for me. I've got to, I have a debt that I owe to you. No, here's a good word for you. What we're speaking of here is unrecompensable favor. Can't be compensated. There is no compensation. It is unrecompensable favor. If we don't get this truth right, our motive for Christian service is lost. If we're doing our good in order to pay back God for what Jesus did for us, we're missing the point. This is grace. Learn what grace is. It's the opposite of a works uh, perspective on salvation. Now, I'm not saying don't serve him. Serve the daylights out of him. Serve him with everything you got. Love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. But not to repay him. But you do it in love. See, what he did was in love. And what we respond in is love. We love him for what he did for us. But nothing to the cross of me. How's that one verse go? Uh, I was just thinking of it. I looked it up while we were singing something else. Uh, Rock of Ages. 
In my hands no price I bring, simply to his cross I cling. No payment at all that we bring. It's all a matter of embracing what God has done for us. Fact number six. Grace is not given to pay a debt. Another very important point. God owes us nothing. There isn't the least degree of merit on our part or guilt on God's. We don't say, well, obviously he did something. Look at the mess that he set up here. Set up a system whereby there could be sin and a sin of separation and all this rebellion, all this suffering. Surely he feels some obligation to come back and help us out and deliver us from the mess that he helped to create. Uh, That's low level of thinking, friends. It's understandable to go through that question, but the scriptures are clear. And one day, if we don't understand it now, we will understand it as the Spirit opens our mind. God owes us nothing. There isn't the least degree of merit on our part or guilt on God. You see, if there was one, there was the other. If we merit some response from him, that implies that he's got some culpability to our condition. But there, we, we do not uh, have any merit, so he has no guilt. See, all human merit, every vestige of it is absent. Absolutely. And forever. God does not assume responsibility for the mess in which humanity finds itself. God is utterly free to walk away. Now, his love compels him not to walk away. But we're speaking here in terms of the legal system of justice. God is faithful and just. He's utterly free to walk away. Which leads us to the final fact, fact seven. Grace is never the overpayment of a debt. Rather, this is a matter of infinite kindness, disassociated from any obligation. It is not, therefore, more than it would have been if we had sinned less. We are talking about a measureless blessing, since it represents in every case all that God, being actuated by infinite love, can infinitely do. You all see how important this is? How revealing this is of the nature of God? And how grateful God can make us to be. And we get out of this meritorious system that we use in some areas of life rightly, but not here. And I'll explain that in just a minute. See, this is a very important truth we understand. Natural man does not understand this. We explained this in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. In verse 14 we read, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. The lost do not comprehend the the heart of the gospel. Now their common expectation is. That at least really good people. Should go to heaven when they die. Based on their goodness. Surely the elderly. What have they done? There they are. Vulnerable and pushing a cart or riding in a wheelchair or sweet and when her to fly. Surely the elderly go in. What about nuns? How could you say nuns don't get reconciled to God? They devote their lives to serving God. And what about leper colony workers or charity donors or little league coaches or maybe just possibly me? Even if I just get under the wire, Lord, I know I've done this and this and this, but can we balance it a little bit with things that I have done that were proper? 
Natural man does not understand. His common expectation is that at least really good people, maybe not axe murderers, you know, maybe not uh, whatever is the out and out in the culture of the day, but surely good people based on their goodness. And I'm going to give an answer to that, but I want to raise the other issues here first. Uh, some causes of these wrong ideas about goodness is a misunderstanding of Bible stories. For example, Noah. What do we read in uh, Genesis chapter 7? It is that Noah found favor. No, Noah was righteous and therefore he was given deliverance uh, on the ark because of his righteousness. Didn't he earn his way from the wrath of God because of his righteousness? And what about the rich young ruler? Rich young ruler says, good master, what good deed must I do to achieve eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. Doesn't he say, keep the commandments and you go to heaven to the rich young ruler? And there are certain Bible verses that people will quote, like James 2.20. Doesn't the Bible say faith without works is dead? So you got faith and you got your works. You need both of them together, right? Or, now look at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. And chapter 20, verse 12, we read here all these dead people brought back to life, standing before the great white throne, and they're judged according to their works. So, isn't a person saved by works? And then one other reason that natural man does not understand the issue of salvation by grace is a misapplication of what I would call a good principle. Honorable people earn their way through work. We all agree with that. We think it's, there's good to have a, it's good to have a meritocracy uh, in school, uh, in sports, uh, in the business field, many other areas. You earn what you get. You work hard, you get pay. If any man would not work, neither should he eat. And so that's a good principle. Why, why isn't it that way into going to heaven? You, you labor for it. You be a good, honest person, virtuous. You go to heaven when you die. So those are some of the arguments. I'm going to give brief answers to each of them. Did not God save Noah because he was good? God said to Noah, Thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Genesis 7.1 Well, the answer comes in the previous chapter, friends. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. There we read, Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's a matter of grace. It's not a matter that Noah was perfect, but in a wicked generation, as you read about there in Genesis chapter 7, where every imagination of the thought of people's hearts was only evil continually, it wouldn't be too hard to stand apart from that separately and comparatively be found to be right. But there's no declaration there of his perfection. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord, which is unmerited favor. What about the rich young ruler? He asked, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Matthew 19, 16. Jesus did answer, keep the commandments, verse 17. The message that he gives, though, is no one can keep them. This rich young ruler, if he would have tried and thought through this more deeply, he would have gone, I can't do it. Jesus said, you're right, you can't do it. Now let me explain to you how you can find your eternal life. The point is you can keep them. Jesus uh, attempted to have him learn that by saying to him that you're rich, sell all you have and go and uh, feed the poor and follow me. And he went away sorrowful. It was asking too much. So we found he was breaching the very first commandment, thou shalt have no other God before me. Clearly his material was his God. 
So the rich young ruler, like Noah, there's no basis there for salvation by works. What about the Bible verse James 2.20? I've had people quote this to me before. Say, so look at James chapter 2. Clearly, you've got to have works along with faith in order to be saved. And the verse is, verse 20, Will not know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Question, is not therefore a combination of faith and works needed to earn salvation? The answer is, works are evidence of true faith, not a means of salvation. In fact, concerning Abraham, just read the chapter. What does verse 23 say in that same chapter, James 2? Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So he was saved by grace as well. Uh, What about uh, Revelation chapter 20? The dead were judged out of the things which are written in the books according to their works. Is that entrance to heaven here based on works? This is what people have as a picture. I'll, I'll come to the heaven's gates and there'll be Peter with a book and he's going to say, now why should we let you into heaven? But the great white throne judgment, you know how many people go through the great white throne judgment and end up in heaven? None. Zero. The great white throne is to reveal those who are going to hell. And the books that are opened and the works that are found in that book are revealing that we had committed sin, that mankind had committed sin that had not been transferred over to the proxy Jesus Christ for forgiveness. No one before the great white throne enters heaven but will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what we're told in verse 15 of that same chapter. And what about the good principle? The laborer is worthy of his hire. Luke 10, verse 7. Is it not more honorable to earn a place in heaven? I have seen uh, my own family members numerous times talk of, well, I remember this one case, an older person who was a friend of my folks who lived a very reprobate life, didn't even attend church, which was rare back in those days. Almost everybody went to church. Uh, but uh, he was a, a sinner in this way and that way. And my parents were sort of set back when the funeral, somebody, a Baptist minister, had witnessed to this fellow shortly before he died. And he said he's received Christ and he's forgiven of his sins. And my folks thought, said, no, truth is, we know this fellow. We've, we've known him all his life. And isn't that convenient? All that sin through whole life. And then right at the end there, boom, you, uh, oh, you believe in Jesus and now all that's forgiven? Well, if it was a sincere belief, the answer is yes. What about the uh, thief who was on the cross? Oh, whatever life he led up to that point, there right at the end, I believe he believed, trusted in Christ. Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. So is it not more honorable to earn a place in heaven? This is a fate man cannot earn, but only receive. As we see in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believed on his name. We have to have a different mindset in that the way to be forgiven our sins is not a meritocracy, but totally a free gift from God. Again, natural man does not understand this. Natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But spiritual man can understand. So we read in 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things 
that are freely given to us of God. If this is a difficult or hard to swallow doctrine, pray to God, read the scriptures and see if he doesn't open up your mind to comprehend it with a depth and conviction as never before. And you'll find yourself having no room, no no comfort with any false gospel. You'll join with the with the reformers who cry out, sola grace, only grace, sola fide, only faith. None of this putting in an admixture of works. No, there's no joining of the two at all. Here is the truth about God's gracious gift of salvation. One, Jesus Christ paid the debt for our sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Note the first person plural pronouns. Our transgressions, our iniquities, and now our peace. Jesus Christ has taken all of our sins upon himself. If not, then Christ died needlessly. You understand any doctrine of works is... uh, Uh, reproach against Christ. We read in Galatians 2.21, I do not frustrate, that means I do not make void the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He died pointlessly. You didn't need him. You see that? You could have made it on your own. Just uh, live a good life and make a passionate appeal. Who knows, you might get in. But no, if it's Christ, then it's not works. If it's works, it's not Christ. You see, Christ paid the debt exhaustively. We read in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, have they quickened together with him, having forgiven you how many trespasses? Oh, that's it. There's nothing left. We're told that Jesus Christ, when he comes again, he'll come without reference to sin because there is no sin in us who have claimed the blood of Jesus Christ. So the handwriting of ordinances that was against us has been blotted out. It was contrary to us, but he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And if I can use a sort of modern day vernacular here, we're talking about a single payer system here. Uh, There's no uh, 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 copay and there's no, uh, what do you pay before they kick in? What's that? Yeah, no co-insurance. There's, it's a single payer system. If we pay it, listen, great verse, Romans eleven six, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Deductible, that's the other word I was thinking. No deductible either. If by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more. You want to define grace? No works. No works. If there's any works, it's not grace. Grace is mutually exclusive with works. There's no joining of them at all. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. There's absolutely no joining. Well, aren't we supposed to do works? Yes, you do works, but not to procure salvation, but because in love you have been saved. It's an evidence of true salvation that you now want to serve him who saved you. But it wasn't the means of salvation. Number five, we're about done. Blessed are those not offended with God's design. 
Jesus says in Matthew eleven six, Blessed is he whoever shall not be offended, that is not stumbling over what the doctrine is concerning me and my death for you. Number six, blessed are those who are humbled by this gospel. Have you ever thought about this? That the first characteristic of a person that Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. As if that's what has to be occurring first before any of the stuff that follows can follow. First, you must humble yourself and just receive what God said. And in this matter of pride, some, some people might say, I don't take charity from anybody. So I'm going to get there to heaven on my own terms. I'm not going to get there. Well, tell you what, friend, you ain't getting there. <laughs> this is something we have to humble ourselves and just receive. There is no other way. So blessed are those who submit to this gospel. 1 Peter 4.17, Peter asks, What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of Christ, a gospel of God? Uh, I've shared this with some of you before, but there are no plateaus, there is no neutrality when it comes to our relationship with God. We're either saying yes and receive, or we're saying no and we obey not. There's no third choice. You're responding to the Holy Spirit of God is drawing you to come and believe. And the question is, what shall the end be of them that obey not, who stiff arm the Lord, who obey not the gospel of God? Blessed are those who believe and receive this gospel's Savior. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Receive and believe. That's all there is. Just receive and believe. What must I do to achieve eternal life? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's too simple. It is simple. In one sense, it's very simple. But it's biblical. That's the issue. It's God's way. Now, a final prayer. 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11. But the God of all grace, the God of all grace, isn't that a phrase to remember? who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oh, friends, what a glorious provision God has given to us. What a glorious liberator it is when we grasp this principle and the Lord deepens our comprehension of it and our soul responds just as we read here to God be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May we pray. We know, Lord, it is a good thing to go back and review and deepen our comprehension of fundamental doctrines. And we pray for those who hear this message who are saved. They'll find themselves more equipped to share these truths with others and who find themselves more liberated in their own soul to love the Lord and respond to him and serve him. And Lord, there may be those who hear this message today who now comprehend what before was confusing to them and they're ready to render themselves to God and believe on Christ that he died for our sins. Perhaps there's a soul here in this very room, Lord, 
who today the Holy Spirit is drawing to salvation. Would you have that person to come the rest of the way and now obey the gospel and now submit himself in humility and now believe Christ died for his or her sins? Lord, even as we continue now with the final hymn and as we go about the fellowship afterwards, if there is a soul inquiring and seeking and desiring salvation, bring him or her to that place to talk to me or to one of the other leaders here whoever else knows the gospel. May nobody leave this day, Lord, still lost, still hopeless, still uncomprehending, still natural. And that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.